Six weeks ago, in a large convention center in Louisville, Kentucky, I found myself teary-eyed and wistfully singing, It Is Well With My Soul. Patrick and I were attending the last ever gathering of Together for the Gospel, or some of you might be familiar with it, T4G. T4G, or Together for the Gospel, is a biannual conference that began in 2006 as a reformed resurgence swept through parts of American evangelicalism. This conference had 2,700 attendees at its first gathering, and it would soon balloon to 10,000, 12,000, even 14,000 attendees in years to come. Pastors, missionaries, seminary students, Christians, not just from across the country, but across the globe, would all attend T4G. I always counted it a highlight of the year to attend and see friends from my native Arkansas, from college in Mississippi, friends from seminary in New Orleans, friends that I've known in my decade plus of ministry in New England, friends serving overseas in East Asia, in Europe, in Thailand, you name it. It was just a a, a never-ending supply of getting to see and catch up with friends and other Loved ones rejoicing in the gospel of Christ Jesus crucified for our sins. After the conference ended, I was wistfully reminiscing about it, talking to Patrick and a couple other guys we were having dinner with. And I said, where else can I go and reconnect with so many dear friends at once? And in a lovingly blunt, sarcastic manner, Patrick responded, well, I can think of one place, heaven. And I said, well, you have a point there. Together for the Gospel was sadly brought to a close because we found over the last four, six, eight years that Christians that at one time were so together are not as together anymore. Perhaps you've seen this. Whether it's politics and elections, Matters of discord and tension surrounding race conversations or COVID reactions and responses or any number of issues, an American church that was once more together has become more and more fractured. I believe the church in America saw some kind of revival, which if you're unfamiliar with that term, a revival is a particular evident outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God at work in His church. I believe the church in America saw this over the last 15 to 20 years. But as one scholar and historian has wisely pointed out, you never really know you're seeing a revival unfold in real time until you realize that it has concluded. The church is fractured. Strife and division has risen to the surface. As we look around at the state of the American church, strife, conflict, cover-ups, other lamentable tragedies, much of which brought on by the church's own sin, how do we respond? How do we respond as a local congregation when we wonder, or it seems, that the doors of heaven have closed, that the lights have come on, and the revival has concluded? Well, I think Isaiah 63, 15-64, 12 helps us. What it shows us is that as we despair over broad woes that the church is enduring, let us look inwardly and where necessary, repent and plead for God to work in us. Let me say this again. As we despair 
over broad woes that the church is enduring. When I say church, I think like broad, like American church or evangelical church. Let us look inwardly and where necessary, repent and plead for God to work in us. We're going to see Isaiah wrestling over questions of God's compassion in this passage. And the first question we will see Isaiah ask is, why is God's compassion withheld? Why is God's compassion withheld? This very idea seems a little odd. Is God allowed to do that? Is God allowed to withhold His compassion from those whom He has promised it to? Doesn't this contradict who He is? Doesn't it stand in opposition of all that the people of God say and sing about the God that we hope and trust in? Is He allowed an out clause? Can He just walk away? Listen to the cry of Isaiah in verses 15 and 16 of of chapter 63. Isaiah prays, look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our redeem, our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. In these verses, Isaiah is describing the present attitude of God as he sees it towards him and towards the people of Israel. A people whom he seems to be holding his compassion back from. It's likely that Isaiah wrote these words prior in, in previous sections that we've seen in the book of Isaiah where uh, uh, the Babylonians were, were about to invade and were going to capture and kill and deport the people of Judah from their homeland. And they're looking up saying, where is God? It's likely Isaiah is wondering this right now. And I think we have these words situated at this and this glorious climax to the conclusion of the book of Isaiah so that we might see important lessons for us in understanding our responsibility to respond to the grace of God. So Isaiah, appealing to the timelessness of the faith, remarks how he and the people of Judah, they're not trusting in Abraham or Israel, two patriarchs from Genesis. Their trust is in God. They say in verse 17, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Verse 17 helps us to gain a little greater insight as to what is going on with this apparent withdrawal of the compassion of God for his people. Isaiah says their hearts had been hardened by God. So there's something going on in the hearts of the people of Judah where they're not exactly in sync with God or not exactly trusting God or or believing Him. And so as we see God did this work of hardening, we ask the question, does God just sometimes wake up and indiscriminately flip a switch in hearts, turning some away from Him? What caused this? Well, here's what's happening. God does not tolerate dishonesty on the part of His people. He does not tolerate a people who show up for worship and sing His praises and then they defame and dismiss Him as they go about their lives. We do not pander to God. We do not entertain God. We worship Him. We cherish Him. We love Him. We trust Him. And if we are not doing these things, we are lying to Him. We're lying to ourselves. 
There's a strange mystery in regards to the hardening of hearts of God's people. It's where they give themselves to sinful disobedience against God. To worshiping and serving things apart from God. Until God, one day, they cross a line and He withholds His compassion. They regularly deny their need for and trust in God and they adopt a spirit believing that God is to serve them and not them serve God. I don't know about you, but that sounds like my heart sometimes. Have you ever found yourself bored with God? Disinterested in God? Unconcerned with what His Word says? What His Word calls us to? One illustration that you could imagine the hardening of hearts that God does in His people. Imagine a swimmer at the beach who ignores warnings of dangerous undercurrents and they swim further and further and further out into the ocean, away from the shore until he looks up and all of a sudden he is suddenly no longer able to swim back to shore and he actually needs rescue. This is what it means to toy with, to continually flirt with sin or idols that lead us further and further and further away from God and then to reach a point where we realize, oh, I can't swim back there on my own. I need something to come rescue me. This is what Isaiah is crying out to here. He's saying, Lord, we Your people, we have swam too far out. We do not worship You. We do not trust You. We do not believe You as we should. We have found things of this life that are more appealing to us. That are more seductive. And Lord, we need Your rescue. To have one's heart hardened by God means you cannot flip the switch and return to Him at Your volition. You need Him to pursue you. And maybe that is an appropriate point of application for us today. Do you find yourself bored with God? Far too often disinterested in God. Maybe an important prayer for you today, even right now as you sit here listening to this, or today as you leave, or tonight as you lay your head on the pillow, Lord, help me to want to want You again. Lord, You must bridge that gap. I cannot bridge it on my own. The people of Judah experienced this as they endured the scorn and the mistreatment of peoples around them. Isaiah prays, if you skip down to chapter 64, verses 1-3, to Isaiah prays for God to work in power as he writes, Oh, that You would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at Your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make Your name known to Your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at Your presence. When You did awesome things that we did not look for, You came down, the mountains quaked at Your presence. This is a heartfelt, earnest prayer on the part of Isaiah. God, these nations around us, they're suffocating us. They're drowning us out. Can You step in, God? Can You work in great power in us? Send Your presence, Your power. Act. Don't You want the glory of God amongst the nations? The God of Israel to be glorified? Don't You want this, God? 
We'll see the answer to this in due time, but let me just say this to hold us off, to tide us over. The most passionate prayers for the glory of God outside of us in our nation, in our neighborhoods, in the world, these are not what God is after in regards to our own hearts. God cares more about what He wants for us than what we could dream about or want for Him. Do you catch that? God does not want us to get in the business of telling Him what He needs to do elsewhere when we ignore what He tells us in regards to our lives and our hearts. And God withholds His compassion because His people's hearts have been hardened first with their own sin and then His divine action. And so if He's going to withhold His compassion as we wrestle over this concept today, the next thing we must see in verses 4 and 5 is how we can understand His compassion. God's compassion understood. Isaiah writes in verse 4 and 5, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Isaiah rightly attributes to God that He is greater than any other being, entity, deity that could be imagined, that could be crafted, that could be dreamed of. No eye has seen a God besides you. And look at what he says at the end of verse 4. A God who acts for those who wait for Him. Let me give us all a caution. A pointing out of something that all of us, myself included, need to hear. The breeding ground of distrust in God and drifting away from Him is impatience. Is an unwillingness to trust Him and His timing. An unwillingness to believe that He has our interests, our good at heart. Patience, waiting, is miserable. I've joked with others before, the most difficult thing somebody could pray for and ask God for is patience. You will find yourself stopped at every red light for the next three weeks. You will find the appointment or the phone call that should have lasted 20 minutes last three and a half hours. You will find things breaking that need repairing. You will find delays and confusion. I say that half-jokingly. But patience and a request and a prayer for it is not, in, not something that we line up for desiring. Yet how often in impatience do we turn away from God? Impatience over the fact that God has not brought a spouse or a relationship that we desire. So we say, well, 
This one who is not a Christian, oh, 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 that'll be okay. Impatience or lack of trust in God that He has not provided financially like we need. And we find ourselves saying, well, I guess I'll have to take things into my own hands. And we make decisions that lead to us having to make significant distortions to our obedience to Him, our our ability to spend time in His Word, our ability to worship with the church body regularly. Because we say, well, I've got things of greater importance that I must address, and God's the one that has not proven Himself faithful. We would never word it like that. And yet, impatience is the breeding ground for drifting away from God. How easily do we get impatient about those whom God has brought into our lives that frustrate us, that wear us out, that always seem to burn us out and drag us down. And it is not our own sin that becomes the cause of our short-temperedness or our anger or our animosity or our bitterness. No, it's not my sin. It's that person. person. It is my impatience with them. Impatience is the breeding ground of blame-shifting and of refusing to trust in the necessary, though at times painful, sanctifying work of God as He roots out bitterness and anger and vitriol and greed and roots in love and joy and peace peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Yes, impatience is not something for us to mark as a cute little character flaw of ours. No, it's the breeding ground where the undercurrent pulls us away from the shore of God's faithfulness and His love. Furthermore, God's compassion is understood in verse 5, you meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who who remember you in your ways. A problem with the people of Judah is one that we've seen time and time again in the book of Isaiah. It's not that they weren't attending church. It's not that they weren't saying and doing the right things. It's that they were attending church and saying and doing the right things and then the rest of the week their hearts were far from God. And God despises hypocrisy. God despises those who blaspheme His name by singing His great praises in the sanctuary and then with their mouths tear down and destroy others outside of the building. Who in their cunning take advantage of others for their own selfish gain and yet bring harm in their injustice towards others. God despises hypocrisy. God meets those who joyfully work righteousness. Who take what they see and they read and they hear in God's Word and say, okay God, this is going to be difficult to apply, but by Your grace, I pray that You would help me to apply it. As I've thought about this passage even this week, I've been struck by time and time and time again where the Lord has illuminated to my own mind, to my own eyes, to my own heart, how many times I needed to pray and I haven't prayed, Lord God, this thing is very difficult for me to digest and understand. 
And oftentimes it's my own personal quirks. My need for something to be done just the right way. My personal selfish desires or, or, or wishes. My desire to have my way above others. And God has forced me to learn, or is forcing me to learn, I haven't learned it yet, forcing me to say, God, I'm really not okay with how this is, but help me to trust you with it. And it's sometimes over the most basic things. It's over the car repair bill that comes. God, I really did not want to pay a few hundred dollars on that this month. But help me to trust that you are in control. God, I really wanted my schedule today to go this way. And now all this stuff has happened and it's all been thrown up in the air and I'm just kind of upset about it. God, help me to recognize that you are Lord over my days, my moments, my hours, and that you are working your sanctifying good purposes in this. And help me to work in joyful love and righteousness towards those who I encounter today even when I'm disappointed and worked up. He works in those who remember Him in His ways, who believe His Word and its exhortations for us are not lofty platitudes, but are promises and exhortations that are not just written in the pages of our Bibles but that we would prayerfully desire would be etched in our hearts. And we would say, Lord, no matter what may come, help me to live in a manner and to act, to interact with others in a manner that serves them, that glorifies Your name. And Isaiah asked this question as he's wrestling to understand God's compassion. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? This idea, this question might be one for you to consider. Yeah, God, this idea of trusting you with my life in these ways, mm, I don't know. Can I be saved? It's a hard gap to cross. You're asking a lot of me here, God. Can I trust you with it? Well, in verses 6 to 12, we see how God's compassion can be trusted. Isaiah writes in verse 6 a warning, an exhortation for us, but it's also something that will be, in one sense, it's convicting, in another sense, it's liberating. In one sense, it puts us in the prison of needing to understand ourselves better. In another sense, it frees us from the prison of, of self-denial and of our own self-righteousness. In diagnosing the state of the people of Israel, the people of Judah, Isaiah writes, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon Your name, who rouses himself to take hold of You. You have hidden Your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The tower of God's righteousness, His perfect holiness, 
is the place where our self-righteousness must come and melt into the ground. The key to spiritual vitality, to growth as a follower of Christ, is not to become more and more self-righteous, but to acknowledge, to take ownership of your unrighteousness. Look at this. We become like one who is unclean. Second part of verse 6, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, he says our righteous deeds. Not our unrighteous deeds. Not our worst qualities, our worst traits. Our best traits are like a polluted garment. The language here, the imagery here, is one of, of total disgust. A dirty garment that smells awful. That has stains all over it. And we put it on thinking ourselves to be self-righteous enough or self-righteous enough compared with the guy beside us. And the person we always hold beside us is the one who's a little worse off when we're playing the comparison game. Or at least a little worse off in our mind. And we put on our self-righteousness and we walk into the, the, the presence of our God and we look and we smell and we put off a horrific stench. Our self-righteousness is appalling to God and must be appalling to us. Do you recognize when we refuse to take ownership of our sin, when we refuse to recognize our need for Christ, we look at Him and say, you know, Jesus, that is really a shame that you went to the cross because I didn't need it. No, true righteousness is to recognize the evil of our perceived self-righteousness and to come to Christ at the cross and to be clothed in new garments where we are washed white as snow made holy, made pure, not by ourselves, but by Christ and the work that He has done in our place on the cross. Otherwise, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I remember back in like middle school, junior high school, I don't know if was, other people were like this, my friends and I were, I wanted to make sure I looked right, like first day of school outfits, right? I wanted to have the right clothing on. I wanted to have the right brands. I wanted to, to look like I fit in. I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to be embarrassed and be outside of the cool crowd. The lie that we carry in our own hearts sometimes is that we think I have to clothe myself in my self-righteousness. I have to clothe myself in this. And in doing so, I will fit in with the people of God. When in fact, the lie, that is a lie. We don't want to walk in clothed in the polluted garments of our self-righteousness. We actually want to walk in all wearing the garments of Christ's uh, salvific work in our place, His blood shed for our sins, where we can rejoice in the Gospel with one another. 
where we cannot say, look, oh wow, it looks like you have it all together. But no, where we can say, let us rejoice in Christ and in His Gospel together. Let us own our sin and own our need for the Savior and rejoice that He has been sufficient time and time again. Let us rejoice in the fact that His grace is abundant, that His forgiveness is ours, and that the next time that He does not prove Himself graceful to one of His who gets bogged down in their own sin, the next time He does that will be the first time. Because His cross cross is entirely sufficient to meet the greatest sins that you and I carry. That we feel like we, we would honestly wonder or worry that people don't need to sit too close to us in the church because lightning might be coming our way. No, what He shows us here is the greatest thing we could carry in here that would repulse Him is not an intimate awareness of our own sin, but a gross intoxication with our self-righteousness. Heaven help us if that be the case. We fade like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isaiah describing the people of Judah says in verse 7, there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses him to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Hear this as a warning. God will hide His face from those who refuse to call out to Him in in desperate need of His divine grace. But to those who will call out to Him, to those who will humble themselves under His mighty hand, Isaiah writes in verse 8, but now, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and You are our potter. We are all the work of Your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all Your people. And now as we start to conclude, I want you to see something. As we see this idea of trusting in God's compassion. He says in verse 10, your holy cities have become like a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a destruction. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. I want you to see and consider something here. The key to God's compassion washing over His people with spectacular force, with congregation-changing power, with relationship-changing and building magnitude, with a wonder where others who gather with the congregation and and they see how, how the church rejoices in Christ and in His Gospel, and it leaves those who do not know Him Uh, strangely perplexed, yet also compelled by it, the power and the wonder of that is found in our great awareness of our need for it. I want you to see something. Remember in verses 1-3 through where Isaiah prayed, God, rend the heavens come down, the mountains would, would quake, 
Make known Your name among among Your adversaries that the nations would tremble in Your presence. Isaiah praying this big, bold, mighty prayer. God, work in sending Your power, Your authority, Your presence upon the world. And Isaiah comes to realize that the most powerful, important thing that he can pray is God, make Your power, Your presence, Your goodness, Your grace come upon Your people. The world is transformed by a people transformed by the grace of God. What Isaiah wants us to grasp about the wonders of the Gospel, like we're seeing in these latter pages of Isaiah, the promise of the eternal reign of Christ over all of creation. What he wants us to see, why this is here, is he doesn't want us to miss the boat. He wants us to recognize that we enter into the promises of God for His people. We enter into experience of the wonder of His divine grace and His spectacular mercy, not by desiring it for everyone outside of us, but by recognizing our need for it and crying out for it from desperate hearts ourselves. It's easy to look outside of us and lament the evil that we see in the world. Lament the the fracturing, the splitting, the dividing of even the church in America. And to say, whoa, we look at an uncertain future. Won't God do something in this country? Won't God do something to right the ship? It's easy to do that. It's easy to point elsewhere and say the problems are outside of us. But God knows, and He wants us to know, the greatest problems that we have to worry about are inside of us. Heaven help us as a church to not have PhDs in the sins of everyone around us and yet be stuck in preschool when it comes to understanding and knowing our own sins. Heaven help our marriages, our relationships with others, our our relationships with co-workers, our children, to not have PhDs and advanced degrees and expertise in the sins of everyone around us. to come to the divine school of the grace of God and exposing our need for Him and submitting to and being transformed by that. Starting here, spreading here, and then praying that it will go to the ends of the earth. May we pray, may we yearn for God to work that in us. as we despair over broad woes that the church is enduring that we see happening in our nation, let us look inwardly and 
where necessary, repent and plead for God to work in us. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that You would turn the magnifying glass of our exploration of the sins of others and make it become a mirror to our own hearts and seeing our sin. And then let us run to Christ and look ever so intently, ever so nearly, ever so desperately upon the cross and cling to Christ and to joyfully take heart in and lay our sin, our self-righteousness before Him and not pray first and foremost that He would rebuild all that is outside of us, but that where necessary, He would rebuild us. That for every look we take at the sins of others, may we take ten looks at our sin. And help us to yearn for You. And know that the never-ending flood of Your grace is not something to observe as it washes by, but to dive into that living water and live everlasting. Through Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.